Speaking of blessing, uh, this morning we embark in, uh, in the book of Ephesians. Last week we looked at the first three verses as kind of an introduction. And today we begin um, the exposition of Ephesians, kind of the proper exposition of, of Ephesians, starting in verse 3. And we'll only be looking at the first four verses of that section, verses 3 to 6. But so that you understand, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 uh, through 14 is one super long sentence, 202 words, and it's a singular, like it's a singular run on and run on and run on kind of a prayer sentence. And it has a purpose. Its purpose is to build a case to give praise to God the Father, to praise him for the work of salvation he has accomplished in Jesus Christ. It is a singular song of blessing. And we'll talk more about it, but this, this kind of uh, uh, this formula that we have in Scripture, this blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be the Lord God, blessed be God, it's a means of expressing the worship that he is deserving because of who he is and because of what he's done. Worship is at the key of it all, right? Um, I don't know why this is giving me so much trouble. As we think about um, the great doctrines that are presented, especially in this, in this, uh, this word of blessing in verses 3 to 14, things like election, adoption that we'll look at today, um, things like redemption, forgiveness of sins, and the seal of, of, uh, of eternal life. I mean, things that are rich and magnificent and wondrous and indeed praiseworthy, the thing that we need to constantly draw back from those doctrinal great truths is that it is intended for us to look to our God with open arms, with open eyes, and to just exalt in the goodness of who he is. And so that's what we're talking about uh, in the opening um, section of this great um, prayer of, of thanksgiving and blessing. We're speaking of the idea of him who blesses us. And the concept, I think, that is presented to us is that our entire being, we have a purpose. Human beings are made for a purpose. And it's not to find an identity in ourselves. It's not to find satisfaction in the things that we like. It's not merely to, to, you know, to fulfill our desires or to consume those things that are desirable or delightful to us. It's not to self-satisfy, but to worship another. And if we could follow that, if we could find that to be the central truth of Scripture and of life, then we will find ourselves more satisfied, more grateful, more fulfilled and purposeful than if it's all about us. The all about us part is the idolatry that comes from the fall. We were created to worship the one true God. And that's, I think, what Paul is trying to do. Before he gets to all the doctrinal sections of the book, before he gets to the practical sections of the second half of the book, he wants to deal with this. There's a reason to bless the name of God in our Lord Jesus Christ. We should bless him who blesses us. Let me read to you the entirety of this word of blessing, this eulogy, you know, minus the funeral, right? Uh, this good word concerning our God, starting in verse 3 all the way to verse 14. And then we'll pray and we'll unpack the first few verses. 
starting in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as we come before you, recognizing the the reality of a God that is absolutely free, that you are sovereign and nothing hinders nor stops your absolute perfect will. And even in discovering and, and, and relishing the fact that you are absolutely in control of all things, Lord, may we be astounded again to realize that it is you who has chosen us. That you have chosen to bless us despite what we are, despite who we are, despite what we are capable of. That in your knowledge of all things, you knew us well. And you knew the depth of a lifetime's worth of sin. And yet you sent your son to pay our penalties so that we might be free. Father, as we look to this passage and to the many passages that are to come, may we be reminded again and again with the conviction that you are to be worshipped, that we need to bless your name, that we need to know our God, to believe in Jesus Christ, his son, to find not just life and salvation for us, but to find our purpose, to worship our God and Savior. We praise you for your grace for all the words that we can lift up, the things that make us think well. Lord, increase our capacities to think rightly of you so that praise might overflow from our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So bless him who blesses us. And there's really, we're just dividing each one verse by verse. Uh, One is that we are blessed in Christ. Second, that we are chosen in Christ. Third, adopted in him. And they finally be graced in Christ. But we'll take a look at verse 3. We looked at verse 3 a little bit last week. But verse 3 is interesting because it is, uh, in a lot of ways, it is the summary statement. It is, uh, it is what is to be expressed. And then everything else kind of flows in and fills in this expression in verse 3. And here's the statement. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
Now, let me, let me begin by talking a little bit about uh, the, the, the form that this particular song of blessing, this prayer of blessing takes. It is an outburst of, of blessing. It is an outburst of praise. It's almost like Paul, like he has said, this is Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to you guys that are saints in Ephesus. And as he's about to write, he's about to deal with all of these interesting and significant things. Things like our sinfulness, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, our need for a savior and Jesus' death on the cross for us. That by grace we have been saved and it is not a work that we have done or that we have participated in at all. But that is all a work of Christ on the cross for us. And so deep things about the gospel and its implications for life. So based on that, how should we live? How do we interact? How do we get along in our households? How do we get along with one another? How do we get along with those that are culturally different from us? And in fact, culturally enemies of ours. Right? All of these things Paul's about to unpack. But before he goes there, it's like he breaks out in this song. A barakah. Barakah comes from um, the Hebrew word uh, barakah, which means blessing. And it is a characteristic Jewish prayer of blessing. And it takes a certain form. You, you know it, at least in our English, by the phrase, blessed be the Lord, or blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be God, right? It's the blessed be. The, the idea of it might be a little bit odd to you. Because I got to admit, it's a little odd to me. Um, Every once in a while, someone will pray and they'll say, you know, um, maybe in a congregational context. And I'll hear them say something like, Lord, we bless you. And I just think that's weird. Right. Because how do we bless God? And so to understand, I mean, when we say that we we call others to bless God or we say blessed be God. We don't mean that blessing in the same way that God blesses us. When God blesses us, it is real, material, actual. Right? When we bless God or we say blessed be God, we are ascribing him the blessedness that he deserves. But it is, it is just a thought. It's just an ascription. It's truth. But that's all we can offer. We don't add anything to his glory, nor do we add anything to his, his worthiness. All we're doing is, is extending a word of blessing to say, this is our God, how praiseworthy he is. It's a common phrase throughout the Old Testament scriptures, because like I said, it's a Jewish form of blessing, right? A, a blessing prayer. And uh, you find it particularly like in the Psalms. And I think it's kind of interesting you know, if you, if you know, the Psalms are broken up into five books, right? Uh, chapters 1 through 41, 42 to 72, 73 to 89, 90 to 106, 107 to 150. So five books. And, and if you think that's kind of weird, you just read the Psalms and you'll discover at the beginning of each book, it'll say book one, book two, right? It's just, it's in there in your Bibles for you. But at the end of every one of those books, minus the final book, Right? Because the final book is ended by Psalm 150, which is just praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Right? But after chapter or after book one, after book two, after book three, and after book four is a barakah. Book one ends this way, Psalm 41, 13. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Book two ends this way, Psalm 72, 18 through 19. 
Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Book three, Psalm 89, 52. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Psalm 106, uh, 48, the end of book four. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say amen. Praise the Lord. So you see, there's, there's this kind of natural outburst of blessing, this ascription that Paul is familiar with, and he just kind of burst out in that in here. He is saying, blessed be the God of our Father, right? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It, the, the, entire, the entire 14 verses, no, no, sorry, 3 through 14, the entire 10 verses? Math is not my specialty. I think it's 10 verses, right? Is, is about praising the God who has sent his son to rescue us. It's entirely about the Father, about the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and what they have accomplished in us. Right? So it's an outburst of blessing, a prayer of blessing, but it's all of our blessings that are found in Christ. Look at the second part of verse 3, right? Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That formula of, of the blessing prayer. And then the next phrase says, Who has blessed us in Christ. And if you haven't noticed it, the same word bless is used in three different ways in verse 3, right? Blessed, used as an adjective, like God is blessed, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then as a verb, who has blessed us in Christ? Then as a noun, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Why, why is Paul intentionally building a, a verse on blessing, right? Or blessed, then blessed, then blessing. Why is he doing blessed, blessed, and blessing. Why, why is he adding those things up? Because again, I think he's tying these things together to say that the reason why we seek to bless God in our praise, in our thankfulness, is because of how he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Paul's pouring it on. He is doubling down. He's tripling the idea of the blessedness of who God is. And it is particularly focused, the entire, this entire song, is entirely focused on the person of Jesus Christ. Um, I think last week I mentioned that throughout all of Ephesians, right, which isn't that long of a book, six chapters, um, in Christ, or some, some form of in Christ, in him, through Christ, um, is mentioned about 35, 36 times. But in these few verses, verses 3 to 14, in Christ, or some form of in Christ, is mentioned 11 times. It's like every verse has something about in Christ, right? Every, every phrase, when we talk about the blessing of God, is focused in the person of Jesus Christ. Who has, this is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He ought to be praised and blessed because he has blessed us in Christ. If you're a Christian in this room, I think, you know, it is... Um, Somewhat familiar to you to understand what that means that we are blessed, right? Blessed in Christ. It means that He is the means by which we have found forgiveness of sins and salvation. 
It means that he is the means by which not only is our sin canceled, but we are now adopted, received, and accepted by our God. He is the means by which and the only means by which we might have a relationship with our heavenly father and look to eternity future and to this present life with hope and joy and worship. Jesus Christ is all of it because he died on the cross to cancel our debt, our penalty. So that if we would trust in him and trust in him is not merely to say a formula or to say a prayer or to throw in a throw a pine cone in a fire to trust in him means to give our whole life to him. To depend upon him for our existence and purpose. He will grant to us life eternal, not just life long lived, but a qualitative life. That is too good to express. That is what we are meant to be. That is the satisfaction of our hungry souls. So God the Father has blessed us in Christ. And look at that last phrase of verse 3. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It is every spiritual blessing which means that it's all-encompassing and there is no blessing, a spiritual blessing, that we will find outside of that which is in Christ and found in the heavenly places. But it is a spiritual blessing. And by that, I, I think it means that it refers or is connected to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's why we call it spiritual. Because today, we speak of spiritual and some celebrities, like Oprah, speak of spiritual And it just kind of is this amorphous thing. And a lot of times we think of spiritual just as the opposite of material. But in scripture, spiritual is always aimed at the things and the work of the Holy Spirit. It is those things that are not just merely immaterial, but that are very significant and important and eternal in nature. We have life in Christ because of the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in us. So when we ask each other, hey, how are you doing spiritually? We don't mean, how's the immaterial part of you doing? You know, how's the part I don't see? Everything, you know, all the soul pieces still aligned, right? We don't mean something weird like, we literally mean, how are you doing in things pertaining to the things of the Lord? The Holy Spirit connected things. Your new life, your hope, your faith. How are you doing in terms of your purpose for existence and your worship? How are you doing in everything that is inspired, empowered, and transformed by God through his son and by the power of his Holy Spirit? Every spiritual blessing, it says, in the heavenly places. Heavenly places is uh, significant because it just reminds us that the power is on high. When Christ ascended, he is now enthroned there at the right hand of God in glory. That's the realm of God's glory. That's the heavenly places. That's where every spiritual blessing flows from, from the throne room of God. And so, you know, a parallel thought in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3, is if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
I like that last verse, right? That's Colossians 3, 3. You have died. Everything that's just about yourself, that is laid down. That is dead. You've been baptized with Christ, meaning that you have died to yourself and you are risen with him. So now your life is hidden with Christ in God, in the heavenly places, with our Lord. See, the point of all of this is that our Heavenly Father blesses us with every spiritual blessing. Not with some, not with most, and you have to figure out the rest. But there is absolute adequacy. There is nothing that you might look to in terms of spiritual help and blessing that is outside of Christ, that is outside of the ministry of the Spirit, that is outside of those things that come from the realm of heaven itself. So the question that we would ask ourselves, well, if we have that kind of blessing, if the Lord has indeed blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, then what's wrong with us? Why why do we struggle so? And I like what Harold Honer, who who has written a, a fantastic commentary on the book of Ephesians. Honer says this, The reason why believers do not receive spiritual benefits is not because God is stingy or they have not prayed for them, but because they are not appropriating by faith what God has already given to them. Every spiritual benefit is at our disposal for our spiritual well-being. It's not that God is holding back and it's not that you have not done enough. That would be the opposite of the way that the rest of Ephesians will lay out the plan of our sanctification. It's not in you. Right? So that you can boast. It's not because you're more savable or because your willpower is a little stronger. It's not because you're more intelligent than most. It is simply because God has cast his love upon you. And he has given to you everything pertaining to life and godliness. Every spiritual blessing. And if we meditate on that, if we understand that, if we embrace that, then our impoverished spiritual life is not because God is holding us back. It is exclusively owing to our unwillingness, our unwillingness to appropriate by faith his gracious spiritual blessings. God is not the one that is lacking in generosity or graciousness, right? We just are unwilling to trust in him. Like, Like Abraham and Sarah, we're looking for more human means of accomplishing God's blessing. But go into my, you know, maidservant Hagar, and then we can have a son, and it's acceptable in that cultural time. Why don't we just do it, you know, our way? Why don't we find a better method of this? Why don't we find a better human method of becoming more spiritually mature, God-centered, and prayerful, praiseful, praiseful, worship, worshiping? You get what I mean, right? The point of this verse is that it's a summary statement of everything that is to follow. In fact, Paul is trying to evoke us to praise. And so I love this because right before we begin to examine right, some of the doctrines of God's election, his adoption of sinners, before we start to speak of the majesty of, of Christ's redemptive sacrifice, before all of those excellent, significant, and necessary theological truths, Paul addresses us here, by saying that God blesses us with everything we need. And we need, we need to worship him. We need to praise him. 
You know, all the practical things that are to come. Questions of our partiality, struggles in our relationships, our lack of a sense of love or giving love and walking in love, our our struggles of putting off stuff and putting on stuff, right? Before all that, Paul says, begin with this outburst of praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's our, that's our summary statement, and then everything proceeds from there. So blessed, blessed in Christ, don't worry, we'll move a little faster in these. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Chosen in Christ. Chosen in Christ. It begins with that phrase, just as, right? Even as. So, so that, that is to tell us that this is an expansion of what is said in verse 3. That he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. So now he will enumerate some of those blessings. He will expand upon that thought. And he says, and just as, right? We've just talked about every spiritual blessing. Let me give you one, an example that we can kind of uh, sink our teeth into. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We were chosen before creation. This is a tremendous statement. That one, we are chosen in Christ, right? And second, that we are chosen in Christ before we existed. The, the idea of God's sovereign act of choosing us is what we call the doctrine of election. Election. You, know, you might think of election like, okay, I, I vote for this guy. I vote for this lady. Right? I vote for these things, right? Um, but election, we're talking about it as a doctrine, Um, This is Wayne Grudem's definition. Election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. In the five points of Calvinism, um, election is the you. And if you're like, wait a minute, election doesn't start with you. It's unconditional election, right? In Tulip, is unconditional election. And what we mean by that is God's choosing of us is not conditioned. It's not based on something that he saw in us. It's not based on our potential. It's not based on some favoritism towards those that are chosen. And similarly, his choosing doesn't mean that he is prejudiced against those that are unchosen. Some call this double predestination and the idea being that God looks at the neutrality of all of human beings and he says, this one gets to go to heaven. This one, bing, gets to go to the other place, right? No, th- what scripture tells us is all of fallen humanity, are, they're all rushing headlong to hell. They, they embrace it. They love it. The, the idolatries of their heart, the sinful attitudes of their soul, that, that's what they are. By definition, there are sinners. And for whatever reason, God has cast his love on some. But that doesn't mean that he equally casts his hatred on others. God is a righteous, right, an exacting, holy God. But it would be mistaken for us to think in the same way that he cast his love on those that are undeserving, that he casts his absolute hatred on those that he has not chosen. Because we see that even in the choosing of Jesus over, over his disciples, right? He has 12 that particularly stay with him. He doesn't look at the rest of the disciples and go, I hate you guys, right? He doesn't look at all of humanity and go, I hate all of you guys, but you guys, I love you guys, right? 
He's not weird like that. But if we understand God's election, right, it is about God choosing us, not because of any favor that he sees in us, but because of his gracious favor that he bestows upon us for no reason than because he simply chooses to cast his love on us. Christian, if you're in this room, we need to always be humbly reminded that you have no, you have no right and you have you have no no you know no deserving that made you more savable than somebody else right and when we see other unbelievers when we see other sinners who don't believe in Jesus Christ it should evoke in us not anger right not a concentration of their sinfulness it should evoke in us a sense of mercy and compassion because such am i except for the grace of god that's how we should understand God's choosing of us, his absolutely free election of us. He does it because he does it, and there is no other reason. Because the other thing that you have to recognize in terms of God's election, it is done with full knowledge. He knows all of humanity, and he has chosen some. But similarly, if you take each individual, if you take your own life, Christian, he knows your entire life's worth of sinfulness. And he knew that when he called you, when he chose you, right? Even before the laying of the foundation of the world. At the human level, when we talk about salvation, there is, from our perspective, a sense of choosing. Isn't there? There is. And that, we don't need to be ashamed of that. That's true. Romans ten thirteen says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It implies that those that are going to be saved, they have to call upon the name of the Lord, Right? Like there's an element of that. And from our human perspective, there's some truth to that. There's, there, there's very true and excellent thing to that. So we call each other to repent and to believe. But in the ultimate sense, it is God's election of us that is the deciding factor of our salvation. And John 6, 37 says this, All that the Father gives me, they will come to me. So the Father's giving them, and they will come. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. A few verses later in John 6, 44, this is what Jesus says. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. The point is that we are chosen by God. We are elect. Not because of who we are as individuals. Not because of what, who, who we know, how we grew up, how smart we are, how successful or sinless or upright. No. It is only because God chooses to love some just because he chooses to love some in spite of ourselves. And again, the, the, the emphasis again on verse 4, if you look at it again, even as he chose us in him. See, the in him is in almost every verse, right? In Christ. And this before the foundation of the world. That, that phrase, before the foundation of the world, it's a, it's a building metaphor, a building word, right? The word for foundation. It means the very first work. I imagine it's, you know, I, I don't build buildings, you know. So we've, I've been to Mexico with our Baja team and we built houses and we, we do the best we can. But before we even build houses, they lay a foundation of concrete. I imagine that's the first work. That's the foundation, and I think that's what it means. Before anything that could be called a thing, right? Anything that could be called a thing existed, including us. God saw us, 
He knew us. He knew all of humanity. And he chose some. This is Paul's outburst of praise. That those that call themselves Christians who have placed their faith in Christ and repented of sins, they're Christians not because some cosmic accident or fortunate coincidence. Christian, if you're in this room, it, it was an intentional act of God before you and I ever existed, before the universe was laid out, before there was such thing as reality, God knew and he chose you. I think that's something wondrous about that. But we are chosen, we are elect for a purpose that we might praise the name of Jesus Christ. We are chosen before creation and we are chosen for holiness. The second part of verse 4 says this, that we should be holy and blameless before him. This is a purpose clause. That's what the that takes up for us. This is in order that, right? For the purpose of, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world in order that we should be homely and blameless before him. Holy is the positive, right? That we'd be separate and different. Blameless is the negative, without blemish, without stain, undefiled. Holy, we have said this constantly, the, the key root in holiness is not just moral cleanness. That's, that's not what holiness means. At its core, it just means that it is separate. It suggests that the Holy One is distinct from the world around them. And every Christian needs to live lives that are distinct and different, right? It means that they are different from, you know, the, the, the moral kind of impulse of idolatry that is all around us. False hopes, wrong objects of worship, self-expressions of everything related to themselves, their identity, their hope, right, their desires, all of that, idolatrous and sinful and the opposite of what we should be in Christ. In Christ, we are supposed to be holy, distinct and different from everything that's around us. And the second word, blameless, means morally pure and undefiled. It's something that none of us can claim in ourselves. See, if this is the purpose of God's election, then God will have to do something about this because this is a problem. We are not naturally holy. We're not naturally blameless. In fact, we are the exact opposite of that. We are fully unholy and absolutely committed to being blameful, right? This is what we are as human beings. So that Romans 3 says, look, when you look around, there is none that is righteous. No, not one. Not one that understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have, they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And you see the doubling down of the emphasis. This is a quote from, from the Psalms. But the doubling down of the emphasis that there is not even one person who finds themselves holy and blameless right, in themselves. So Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. So what is God's part in this? Well, he chose us in him, in Christ. So Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, this is the goal of God's election of us. And would you note that it's the plural, right? The first person, plural. 
Paul throughout this is saying we, us, we. He's not saying you singular. This is just for you. Does God love us individually? Absolutely. But we are a called people. We are a redeemed people. We are an elect people. And that is as a group. Arkan Hughes, in in a sermon on this passage, says this. I thought it was convicting and helpful. He says, if your life is characterized by a pattern of conscious sin, you very likely are not a Christian. If some of your most cherished thoughts are hatreds, if you're determined not to forgive, you may not be a true believer. If you're a committed materialist who finds that your greatest joys are self-indulgence, clothing your body with lavish outfits, having all your, your waking thoughts devoted to house, cars, clothing, and comforts, you may not be a Christian. If you are a sensualist who is addicted to pornography, if your mind is a 24-hour bordello and you think it's okay, you may very well not be a Christian regardless of how many times you have gone forward and mouthed the evangelical shibboleths. Election ultimately results in holiness, but the process begins now. Are you concerned for holiness? Are you growing in holiness? Because that is the purpose to which God has elected us. God loved us and chose us in Christ before he made the universe. And his choosing will lead us eventually to holiness and blamelessness. In the meantime, we seek, we seek to honor him by pursuing those things with every blessing that is given to us, every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Third, we're adopted. We're adopted through Christ. We pick up the last phrase of verse 4 because, uh, I, I, you know, the last two words in love, because it probably does connect with the rest of verse 5 and not necessarily with the end of verse 4. So it would read this way. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. We've talked about adoption from this pulpit a lot, and, and I think appropriately so. Um, but adopted, he has predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So there's a lot that is said there. That the word predestined, right, is a synonym to the word choosing, right, or election. The difference is this. Choosing is usually a person, right? You choose an individual. Predestination is exactly that. It's the foreordination or the destiny or the purpose or the direction of something that you have foreordained. And God is saying that he has chosen us, and as a a kind of a a more particularizing of it, he has chosen us how? Well, because he has predestined us, or he has preordained our path towards adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. We are adopted through Christ, because of Christ. We are adopted to the Heavenly Father. There's a lot to be said, right? But... um, The idea that we are adopted to sons or to sonship um, implies that we are granted the full rights and privileges of the inheritor, right, to the Heavenly Father. It's, it's, It's a way of Paul illustrating that every believer, right, has access to God as if he is their Abba Father. And this is what Romans 8.15 says, You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons 
by which we cry, Abba, Father. Right? That's an Aramaic phrase that is like Papa. It, it is more endearing than simply right, Petras or, or the Father. We are not talking about just the official relationship of sons and fathers. We're talking about someone is my dad. Someone is my Papa. And God has adopted us so that he becomes our Papa. You know, in the Old Testament, God is referred to as Father only 14 times. In 39 books, in two-thirds of your Bible, God the Father is referred to as Father only 14 times. And always in reference to the corporate nation, not to any particular individual. But when Jesus shows up on the scene, he teaches his disciples to pray, Abba, Father. To think of God as their Papa. I mean, he encourages us to think of God, not as if he is our master and we are his slaves, right? Just this formal relationship. But as if he is our dad. There's something wondrous about that. And so I won't read it to you because I read it like at least once a year. But J.I. Packer's great statement that that's how you can figure out how well a person understands their Christian faith. Is what do they make of the idea that they are sons of God? And ladies, you know, if this sounds weird and you're like, man, how about the daughters of God? Yeah, the children of God, certainly. But the reason why the New Testament emphasizes sonship is is because at least in that culture, right, the sons were the inheritors of the double blessing. They're the ones that carry on the family name. And yes, children, men and women of faith, all of us, in that sense, share in sonship and inheritance and in the glory of God for those that he calls his own children that are adopted to himself. And Packer's whole entire point when he speaks to this idea that that is the most significant way that we can understand the gospel and our New Testament relationship with our God, he says, Father is the Christian name for God. Right? In the Old Testament, Father was just kind of you know, a metaphor of how God cares for the nation. But in the New Testament, through Jesus Christ, Father is God's name, our Heavenly Father. Right? That's how we refer to Him, because He loves us that way. And we are adopted spiritually to be His. In the Reader's Digest, there's this, this very touching story, this short story that a young mother wrote. She said, I stayed with my parents for several days after the birth of our first child. And one afternoon, I remarked to my mother that it is surprising that our baby had dark hair since both my husband and I are fair. She said, well, your daddy has black hair. But mama, that doesn't matter because I'm adopted. With an embarrassed smile, she said the most wonderful words I've ever heard. I always forget. That's the kind of adoption that we have Through Christ to our Heavenly Father. He loves us like that. And then I remind you that we are adopted in love. It says in love, right, was was the last part of verse 4 that we tacked onto this. In love, he adopts us in Christ. And then look at the last part of of, uh, of verse um, verse 5. According to the purpose of his will. Literally, the Greek, if I make a weird and kind of wooden translation, would be according to the pleasure of, his will, of the will of his, right? The reason why I point that out is because the ESV is not helpful here. Um, 
The ESV says, according to the purpose of his will. And what it's trying to do is trying to give us a smooth translation by taking two words that are often synonyms. Um, The word that we could translate pleasure and the word that we could translate will. Uh, You could use those separately to say that it was God's pleasure, you know, to rescue those sinners. It was God's will to rescue those sinners. And you would mean kind of the same thing. And because they're in the, both words are present in this phrase, the ESV is trying to smooth that out and emphasize intention by saying, right, according to the purpose, the intention of his will. But it misses, I think, the idea of God's affection in it. The NASB is much better. According to the kind intention, the kind intention of his will. So it translates that word, um, Eudokion, right, with kind intention. The New King James Version does an even better job, and it says according to the good pleasure of his will. He's trying to capture the key, right, definition or the key, the root concept of that word, which is pleasure. And the difficulty, right, of of kind of combining those well uh, is understandable. But this is what uh, Peter T. O'Brien, by the way, do you guys know if I name like commentators, it's because I really like them. And that if you hear these names enough, I would think that as you're looking for a commentary or something, you go, oh yeah, Peter T. O'Brien, you know? A Conan's cousin. Like, that guy would be a really good commentator. Like, I hope that you gravitate towards names that you hear. That's why we, we say them, because again, he's not, my, he's not my best friend. I, I like him, but I don't know anything else about him, right? But he says this in his commentary. Pleasure, talking about that word, is used of the passionate concern of Paul's heart in Romans 10.1. And the generous motives that prompted Christians in Rome to proclaim Christ in Philippians 1.15. In other words, it's a term of affection, right? It speaks of his affection. And this is what he says. This word signifies not simply the purpose of God, but also the delight. But also the delight that he takes in his plans. God is delighted to impart spiritual benefits to his children. God is delighted to adopt us to himself. That's what verse 5 means. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the pleasure of his will. I mean, if you take that verse, right, and you, and you kind of plumb the depths of it, our adoption is because God chose to love us. See, on the one hand, we can honestly say, I don't know why God would choose me. Because that's true. We're undeserving. But on the other hand, we can truthfully say, God was delighted to choose me to be his child. Because he wanted me. Because he wanted you. Because he chose to love you. Man, can you drink that in? This is why Paul is bursting out with blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because he's saying this is all the privilege that God has poured out upon us. And why has he done it in the end? What is the final explanation of why he chose Nam Park, that wicked sinner, and not this other guy? His friend that he used to run around with, that kind of grew up in the same way. And the answer is simply because God loved one. Why? I have no idea. And yet I have this idea. That he loved us enough to preordain our lives until we were adopted to himself in Christ because this is exactly according to the pleasure, to the delight 
of his will for us. Adopted through Christ. So we have looked at blessed in Christ, chosen in Christ, adopted in Christ, and be graced in Christ. This, this last verse, verse 6, um, it, it'll be fairly short. Because it, I use the term be graced because I'm trying to find a way to express what this verse is trying to express. Because it gives us then the final destination of it all. Verse 6 says, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. See, so everything that has been said up to this point. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be him because he has chosen us in Christ. Blessed be him because he has adopted us, right, with divine love and delight, right, through Jesus Christ. And it ends with this, or aims towards this. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. To the praise of his glorious grace. Oh man, I forgot to separate those two. Well, you can look at both of those points all at once, right? To the praise of his glorious grace. Literally, it is to the praise of the glory and then his grace, which he graced to us in the beloved. And the reason why I give you that that way is because the point is that God's great glory, right, to the praise of his glory is tied to his grace, which is revealed in our receiving of the grace of God through the beloved son. This is the final goal of all the blessings that God has poured out to his people to bring praise, to exalt worship. To, to, to exalt and to ascribe to him his value and worth because of the glory that is displayed in his graciousness. Psalm 43 says there's going to be a time when the beasts of the field will glorify the Lord. I don't know what that looks like. Dogs running around in circles and yapping, you know, uh, kangaroos jumping and punching the air. I don't know, right? Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare his glory. That when you look at it, it's almost like the stars shine so that they go, dude, do you know who created me? And Romans 8 says that all of creation anxiously groans in anticipation for the final redemption of the sons of God. That's us when we receive our inheritance and when the world is made right. But nothing brings praise to God like the recognition of his grace towards sinners. I mean, why are the animals going to exalt? Why will the heavens, why are the heavens telling of his glory? Why is all of creation anxiously bemoaning the fact that we are not at its final redemption yet? Because the final reality of all things aims to this. The praise of God, because his grace is glorious. Because his glory is revealed in his graciousness. Because those that are absolutely unworthy, he has sanctified and brought to himself. Right, The world and the universe will resound in the praise of the glorious one because of how good he is. When we say God is good, you might think, yeah, it's pretty good. You know, it's good like Pop-Tarts are good. Pop-Tarts are good. You know, it's not my first choice, but that's nah, good. Not great. But when scripture speaks of God is good, it means that he can't turn it off. That there's a kindness in him, a graciousness in him that is deserving of worship because he is that great. He is that merciful. 
He has that kind in that every good thing that we enjoy, we enjoy because even if we are sinners, we enjoy because God is that kind of God. He wants good things to be shown. The example I always give because food is so precious to me, right, is that God could have made everything just taste like gray, right? It's like, hey, what is that? It's my chorizo burrito, bro. It's like, what does it taste like? Well, it tastes like everything else. It tastes like gray, right? You could eat leaves or grass, Read some dirt on this. It all tastes, it just tastes like gray. But he's given us flavor. Why? Because he's good. Right? Spices and different flavors, things for us to experiment with. Why? Because that's how God is good, creative, and excellent in his goodness. But that is the shallow depth of his goodness. The, the, the endless depth of his goodness is why would he rescue a sinner like you and I? Why would he send his perfect son to live his life and to die the death that we deserve to die? Why would he grace us in Christ by granting to us a salvation that we do not deserve and can never deserve so that we would become holy and righteous before him for all time, that we might be his children, his sons adopted and beloved forever? Why? Because that is the nature of the greatness, the glory, the goodness of the grace of our God. Right? To the praise of his glorious grace, he has begraced us. And all I mean by he has begraced us is this. That second phrase, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The term is not the normal term for blessing. It's the term that comes from charis as its root. In other words, it's a word for grace. It's the verbal form of the noun grace. He has begraced us, given us what we could not deserve. And he has done it in the beloved. In Jesus Christ, who is the beloved of God. And beloved by all those who have placed their faith in him. Christian, this is cause for us to bless him who has blessed us. And a reminder for us to cherish our opportunities to worship and honor him. That all of our life must become a living doxology. An expression of praise and honoring of our Savior for what he has done. And if you're not a Christian in this room, if you're visiting, right? Or you're not sure about all these things. Listen, there's no accidents. You're here to hear something from the scriptures. And I'd encourage you, don't let this day pass without you examining more thoroughly, like, what is God's intention of his creation of you? What is your purpose in this universe, not just for today, but for the rest of this life and for the life to come? God's graciousness is unbound, infinite, and glorious. We want to honor him and bless his name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words of just doctrinal truth and the depth by which we might understand the privilege we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, we only begin to speak of your glory, of your glorious grace and every good thing that we have. We ask that you would teach us. Lord, for those that are searching and are uncertain about what they are with Christ. Lord, would you reveal to them the truthfulness of the gospel, their need for a Savior, and the fact that they are welcome by our Heavenly Father. And for those that, uh, of us that proclaim faith in Christ, Lord, help us to pursue a life that honors you, that gives you glory because you are indeed worthy of every glorious thing. Help us to honor your name. And we praise you for all these words. In Jesus' name, amen.